0: Actually, the three guys who wrote that song are followers of Jesus. Did you pay attention to those lyrics? Take a look. It was just part of them. I got off track. I made mistakes. Backslid my way into that place where souls get lost. Lines get crossed, and the pain won't go away. But I hit my knees. Now here I stand. There I was, and now here I am. Here I am. I mean, that... That's resurrection language, and it's beautifully put. You guys have heard me say before, uh, art acts as a hand that comes up to the shutter of our hearts and opens opens the blinds, opens the shutter to let us see things, uh, grapple with things, articulate things uh, that we otherwise weren't capable of doing. That's kind of how we're made as human beings, and artists that know Jesus that can give hope it's powerful that's what that is but uh, artists that don't know Jesus are still image bearers. They're Imago day, and they can still do the same thing. It might not be identifying the answers, but it could, it can be in clarifying the questions. And you talk about a contrast between uh, the Rascal Flatts art piece you just saw. There's another art piece that you can uh, you you heard that you can see this one uh, at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. There is a piece of art from no- 1897 by a French post-impressionist artist artist named Paul Gauguin. He painted this in a pit of despair. He was a contemporary of Van Gogh. You guys know Vincent didn't have an ear. You guys know that deal? Okay. The night that he cut his own ear off, earlier that night he had used the same razor and attacked Paul, his friend, Paul Gauguin, so that kind of did something unpleasant to their friendship, uh, and uh, Gauguin he they, he left Arles and he went back to Paris, and then eventually he headed to Tahiti, and he. I uh, was trying to run away, and he, but he was so despairing, in 1897 his daughter had died, his depression was great, things had accumulated in his life, uh, debts had piled up, despair had piled up. He decided to kill himself, commit suicide, but he said, before I commit suicide I'm going to do one last work of art, and it's what you can find in the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. And he painted this, and up in the top left hand corner, and you can see it on the side screens, he essentially entitles it. It's three questions. Do venonu? Qui sont nous? Où elonu? Where'd we come from? Where have we been? who are we right now? What's happening right now? Where are we going? What's going to be in the future? Past, present, and future. After he finished the painting, He then took some arsenic, some of you are thinking, did you just take some arsenic right now? Is that what's going on with you? I don't know what's going on with me. And it failed. He didn't die. And he described this painting as his greatest work of art, his greatest piece in his entire career. Not necessarily because it was happy news, but because it was profound and it went way deep. What he did right before committing suicide is described as despair. Let me ask you a question in person. At that point of despair, do you think it's their past that's troubling them, their present that's troubling them, or their future that's troubling them? All of the above. We all know it. And he, after the failed suicide attempt, he went on to live it a few more years, he said, the way to, to look at this painting, basically you read it from right to left. And here is the duvene uh, nous. This is the, where would we come from, a little baby, young mothers right here. In the middle section is the present. Here's two women talking here, a young man puzzled over things, and another young man. Then you continue to there's so much more, but where are we going? So that's the qui sont nous. And then you move to the oh, au elan which is an older woman right here culminating. Here you have a religious figure wondering, does religion have anything to do with what's in the future? But here's an old woman about to die being mocked by a white bird that he talked a little bit about. Absolutely brilliant, powerful, visceral for a human being to say, I'm in despair, and the reason I'm in despair is because of my past, my present, and my future. Does the gospel have anything to say to that? Absolutely. And I'll give you one word, light. We'll unpack it, but let's get, put ourselves and in, in, frame it in context. If you're brand new here, we're a group of people that are engaging other people (coughs) to be fully alive in (coughs) Jesus. To be fully alive in Jesus. That sounded really appealing, didn't it? Yeah, this guy was dying up on the stage and he talked about being fully alive. So, uh, I know I've got a cough drop here somewhere. I had one earlier. There it is. Um, As we're engaging one another to be fully alive in Jesus, what we're doing is echoing The words of Jesus Himself in John chapter 10, verse 10, He says, I've come that you might have life. The thief wants to steal and to kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. Have it to the full. That's not a self-improvement thing. It goes deep. It's hard. Life is not heart beating, lung breathing. It's the life of God. It's the life of the Gospel. And that's from John's Gospel. And John wrote his Gospel for this Gospel of life. So we're taking a journey through it. We're calling this teaching journey "Awaken," this series of, of messages, because that's what the gospel summons us to do. Be changed, Awaken. Be changed in the way that you grapple with your past, the way you deal with your present, the way you look at your future. So we're in chapter eight. Before we go there, I want to read two verses from the prologue, from chapter 1, that frame a little bit of where we're coming from, and also shed light, no pun intended, on what Gauguin was dealing with, and even what Rascal Flats was singing about, and they were doing it from two different angles. John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says, what was significant about Jesus is that in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In Him was life, not heart beating, lung breathing only, but the life of God. And that life, get this, listen very carefully, is what sheds light on our journeys as human beings. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. John, is an old man, is writing this, and he's remembering under the inspiration of the Spirit and saying what was significant about him was his life, and that life is our light. And my heart aches for Paul Gauguin, who needed light on his past, on his present, and on his future. So let's go to chapter 8 john 's Gospel if you don 't have a Bible by the way, pick one up outside as our gift to you it 's at the welcome desk we 're in this festival right now in the, in, in the journey of Jesus the past three weeks there's seven festivals in uh, the, the religious calendar of the Jews. Three of them were uh, pilgrimage festivals where people would travel to Jerusalem and they would come there, so the population of Jerusalem would swell. And this is the Feast of Tabernacles, the last one, or the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Sukkot. It's called all three things. So I'm going to read this. What is most significant about this text for you and me in our Mondays is verse 12, the very first statement. Then I'm going to go through, and you're, you're going to need to engage. You're going to need to engage a little bit because there's this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I don't want to read it too fast. But I want to get through it quickly and come back and unpack verse 12. But you need to see that what he's saying in verse 12 is validated, it's credible. It's not just this religious leader that's saying something flowery, it's this Son of God who's the life of the world, who's saying, let me shed light on your journey. Verse 12, John chapter chapter 8, when Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now the Pharisees, they challenged him. They were opposed to him. And if you're new to this whole Christianity thing or whatever, you wonder, Pharisees? These are religious leaders. They 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 would talk about God, but they weren't people of God. Jesus reserved His, His, His deepest criticism for these religious people and their religiosity. That's what this little subculture of religiosity, that was their hope. And they didn't like Him, He loved them, but He came after them, He spoke truth to them. They challenged Him, they said, here you are appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. So he's saying, okay, I'll give you two witnesses. Number one, I'm the one who testifies for myself. And they're thinking, how can you you be a witness for yourself? He is making divine claims in this, that the Pharisees would begin to tell that. And secondly, my other witness is the Father who sent me. And he already claimed to be God earlier in this dialogue regarding the light of the world. But then they ask him, well, where's your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me… You would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. And that's strong stuff. Nobody's got those, that verse on your refrigerator. No. But do you see how he came right at them because they were, they were doing what, it was an immense cosmic crime, is in the guise of religion, they were actually leading people away from the truth, away from the way, away from the life instead of to it. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. And just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but He who sent me is trustworthy. And what I've heard from Him, I tell the world. Well, they didn't understand what He was telling them about His Father. And so Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, that was His favorite reference to Himself. It's from Ezekiel's prophecy. Then you'll know that I'm He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, and He's not left me alone, for i always do what pleases Him. And even as He spoke, many believed in Him. You guys did pretty good there. You actually, you, you grappled with that. You can go back through it. Bottom line, here's what to take away. He's validating his claims. And he's saying, let me give you the validation. It's the Father's witness of me. It goes back to the Holy Spirit coming on him like a dove. His own works of miracles were to validate and give credibility to what he did. That leads up, he's pointing to his passion. his lifting up the Son of Man, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. He's saying all of that is to give you a heads up, to pay attention to what I'm saying. Now we go back to that statement that we started with, that's the the pivotal statement for this morning. It's what I want you to wake up tomorrow morning thinking about this statement. John chapter 8, verse 12, and then Jesus said this. He spoke again to the people and He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's the context of that. Told you the festivals, festival of tabernacles, yes? Festival of tabernacles, two big symbols. The festival of tabernacles was to celebrate God's enoughness, His provision for them in the desert, in the wilderness. Water was a symbol. We talked about that when He said, anybody thirsty, come to me and drink as the priests were pouring this, the the water during the celebration. Well, the last day of the feast was also very significant from a fire standpoint. This is before electricity, before any artificial light. In the court, uh, the the, the court of the women, they referred to it as, there there were four towers, giant lampstands, 75 feet high. Each of these had four ginormous bowls of oil that, and in, those, in that oil were, were wicks, it was the priest's clothing from the previous year. Four bowls on each stand, each 75 feet high, you've got 16 bowls. When they lit it, it became a wonder of the world because all of Jerusalem was illuminated. People could see it for miles, and in the midst of that, what those said that was a symbol of. Is God's presence with them in the wilderness. Psalm 105 recites a little bit of what, what the children of Israel experienced. He sprouted out a cloud as a covering and a fire to give light at night. So they were celebrating the provision of God for their darkness as they navigated through the wilderness. There was also an aspect of we yearn for His light to come again to the temple. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 prophesied about Messiah coming. It says, the people walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's referring to Messiah, referring to Jesus. Now here is Christ's commission to the Father. From Isaiah 48, a lot of you know, Isaiah is one of my favorite prophecies. This is, these, there's so many prophecies, meaning predictions, descriptions about Messiah coming. In verse 6 of Isaiah 42, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will take hold of your hand. This is the Father speaking to the Son. I will keep you, and I will make you to be a covenant for the people. That's referring to the Jews. And a light for the Gentiles. So it's for everyone. You're coming to give light for everyone, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now, let's go back to Gauguin. This artist, absolutely in despair, and it was because He was facing the implications of the fall in his life with no illumination. And without illumination, this is what the darkness of our fallenness does. Our past appears to be unredeemable. Our present seems to be unmanageable. And our future seems to be uninviting. And if you grapple with that, with no anesthetics, no painkillers, no distractions, and you just stare it in the face, despair begins to creep up and just strangle you. So I ask again, does the gospel have anything to do with that? Absolutely. And I told you one word, Light. Let me tell you how to spell light, J-E-S-U-S. You know when I hike at night some of you are saying, "Why are you hiking at night Well, um, when you're climbing, a lot of times you need to start at two or three in the morning to get to a summit somewhere before the uh, thunderstorms come and so forth. So. Need a flashlight. When I'm hiking at night, I want a flashlight, and I want a flashlight for three reasons. Number one, I want to be able to see what's behind me. If I hear a noise back there, I want a flashlight to see what it is. But I also need a flashlight to to tell me where I am. And I also need a flashlight to see where I'm going. Light addresses our past, our present, and our future. Let's tackle those one at a time. What are the implications of Christ saying He's the light of your world, the light of your Monday, your Thursday, your Friday afternoon, and your Sunday morning? What what are the implications? Implication number one is when I begin to engage with His light, relate with Jesus, and submit to His light, I begin to realize my past is redeemable. I start looking back there, and things can put together. There's a lot. I mean, somebody as old as I am, there's a lot back there. Okay, you're going to hear about it all, all week, so let's go ahead and deal with it. Any Kansas City Chiefs fans here? <laughs> they are everywhere, aren't they? I mean, um, <laughs> that's it. That's all we got. Two? I, I know John, some of you enter over there, he was a uh, recruiter. He, he was a greeter back there this, this morning. He was a recruiter for the Kansas City Chiefs back when they won their, their last Super Bowl, which was how long ago? 50 years. And you might ask, what else was going on when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl? Okay, thanks for asking. Let me give you a few others. Some, one of you sent me a website with some of these. Uh, Richard Nixon, a few weeks later, was sworn in as president. You've heard of Boeing 747. That's when it, was in, it took its first flight. They, Boeing created it, finished the production, it flew for the first time. This is Pete and Sam. I, no, I don't know who it is. Uh, But they're in the back of a car. Uh, You know what? how much a car, average cost of a car back when the Chiefs last won the Super Bowl was $3,270. That was an average cost of a brand new car. Average cost of a brand new home, the average home cost $15,550. Gallon of gas is $0.35. So, ATMs, you use them all the time when the chiefs won the super bowl it's when atm started that was the first atm machines started popping up several brands were birthed when the chiefs last won the super bowl one the, the health food chain uh, along john silver's uh, <laughs> but there's econo lodge and double tree the gap was born the year the chiefs last won the super bowl let's uh, see what else we got sesame street started And the Beatles finished, this is their last concert, when the Chiefs last won the Super Bowl. The Beatles, uh, that same year, that's when the Beatles gave their last uh, concert. Joe Biden was first elected to his first elected position, it was city council up in Delaware. Uh, Woodstock happened that same year. Are you kidding me? When the Chiefs last won the Super Bowl, there was a lot going on. Maybe most significant was a number of movie stars made their debut. Anybody know who this is? Arnold. Arnold. <laughs> I don't know. What the, the name of this movie, I think, is Hercules in New York or something. <laughs> and uh, he's actually credited as Arnold Strong. Not even, they couldn't even, they didn't didn't know how to spell Schwarzenegger and put it in the credits. He actually had lines, but he didn't say any of them because his Austrian accent was so thick at that time, before he became a star, they had somebody else dub his line. So if you watch that movie, there he is. So that was most significant. There were lesser things that happened uh, that year, like uh, we walked on the moon. So a lot went on when the Chiefs last won the Super Bowl. What's going on in your life, maybe you weren't even born when the Super Bowl last happened with the Chiefs and the Vikings playing, but you know when you look back here, stuff happens. And it's not all wonderful stuff. And we have memory, and that memory accumulates, and there are implications, and we look back. And sometimes it's not the most pleasant thing cartoon of the cowboy riding along solo out in the west. He comes across this Native American on the the, the rocky dirt road, and the Native American is laying down on the the dirt with his ear pressed to the road, and the cowboy comes up, and the, the Native American says, wait, wagon, two miles ahead, two horses one gray, one black, four people, one man, red flannel shirt, one woman, two children. The cowboy said, that is impressive that you can tell all of that just by listening. He says, no, wagon ran over me. Go get them. When you turn around and look at what's happened to this week, you might not have to go back to Super Bowl number four. You might just need to go back to month number four of this year, I don't know, and you've been run over. There's some wonderful things when I turn around, but those aren't the things that haunt us. Two categories of our past that can choke us and debilitate us. One is our sin, the other is the shrapnel of living in a fallen world that gets embedded in our lives. Our sin, other people's sin or sickness, the shrapnel, tragedies, things that happen that we don't understand that we can't make sense of. First of all, that sin, we talked about that last week. Some of you received forgiveness for your sin through Jesus, received him as Lord and Savior for the first time. It's awesome. And it's something we need to continue to grapple with. But when I look back, when you look back at our past, and we see our sin, they can accumulate, and we need light. now. We don't always welcome the light. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 3. He says... Uh, This is the verdict, verse 19. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We don't like being exposed for what it is, so as a result, we either modify or deny or ignore or deflect, and we've got all of these coping mechanisms for our sin. None of them are adequate, but we just don't want to face the pain of it. But the beauty of the light of Jesus, doesn't say it's not painful because He calls it for what it is, but He comes… And he says, let's shed light on what it is and also how adequate my work on the cross is for every aspect of that sin. First John chapter 1 verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light… We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So, the aspect of my sins that are chasing me, and when I look back, the light of the gospel illuminates not only my sin, but Christ's adequacy, His work on the cross, His substitutionary death for me. How about the shrapnel? How about the stuff that I'm thinking… What is up with that, God? Why did that happen to me? Why did that take place? Why did this person do this? Why did I do this? Might not be sins, might just be knuckleheaded stuff. Or it can range from famine to earthquakes. The Scriptures talk about all of that. But could be other people's sins in our lives. I love this description still in Isaiah, the Messianic prophecy, Isaiah 61, about what Messiah does, about what's happened back here in our past. It says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. This is Messiah speaking. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You see any broken heartedness back there? Somebody came up to me in the here and said, I was just passing by and I said, hey, how are you doing? And I gave that first, yeah, okay, but I could tell the okay was not that strong. I said, what's happening? I don't know this gentleman that well. He said, broken hearted. What does the light of the gospel do? It comes to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, those addictions, all of that stuff that's there. He comes and brings freedom. And the darkness, He comes to release us from it, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of that stuff in our past where we take the lie of the enemy that God no longer loves us because we have not earned His love. The beauty of the gospel comes and says you will never earn His love, but God's favor has come and come through Messiah. So yes, we're to obey, but we obey in response to the favor that we've received says, uh, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. There's mourning back here, but the light of the gospel comforts and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow in them. now love these. Hmm, The crown of beauty instead of ashes. Anybody got ashes back here in the past? Let's be an authentic community for a second. I'd like every one of you out loud to answer honestly. Does anybody have ashes in their past somewhere? Yes. Yes. He comes to bring beauty from those ashes. Mornings back here, He comes to bring joy. Despair is back here, brings a garment of praise, and it will be called Oaks of Righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. And I love this. We've got ancient ruins back here, but they can be rebuilt and restored, places long devastated. Okay, since we've got one more week of all the stuff, one more Super Bowl story back at Christmas, during the break I saw an ESPN special, their 30 by 30 series on the Buffalo Bills. Anybody know the significance of the Buffalo Bills and their Super Bowl record? Anybody know? Any any Buffalo Bills fans here? Okay. So you and this Chiefs fan need to get together. (laughs) Buffalo Bills are the only team to lose four Super Bowls in a row. 1990, 91, 92, 93. Their most painful one was very probably the first one. They lost 20 to 19 by one point, only Super Bowl to be settled by one point. Went down to the last seven seconds. With seven seconds to go, Scott Norwood, their kicker, Arlene and I have a special place in our heart for kickers. All three of our sons were kickers. to high school, one in college, and so we pay attention to the kicker, the plights of kickers. Scott Norwood came up, 47-yard field goal, wide right. He was interviewed, he, he tears up still all, this, all these years later. They, they, they came back to Buffalo, and the town, the city wanted to still celebrate them for winning their league championship, but Scott Norwood was devastated because he ended up losing the game, obviously, and it was because of him, he felt. So he hid in the back of the platform in front of 30,000 people behind all the offensive linemen, you know. And something shocked him. He started hearing a chant, and it grew in the crowd, and then it became thunderous. We want Scott. We want Scott. His fellow teammates parted, and he came to the front of the platform, and everybody, the applause was deafening. The affirmation. And he got to the microphone, he said, I had no idea what to say, because I, there's many things I was expecting from that time, but to have to give a speech is not one of them. And to give a speech to people who love me, and he said, this is the most loved I have ever felt in my life. And when the shrapnel accumulates from our past, I know 30,000 people saying, hey, it's okay, would be nice, let me tell you something. That compares in no way to the king of all the universe to say, it's okay, I got this. I can bring beauty from those ashes. I can, I can bring praise from that morning. I can, a garment of praise, that spirit of despair, I got a garment of praise for that. I've got some, some joy to give you in place of that morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, I look back at this and there's all sorts of stuff that doesn't have God's signature on it at all. It has my sin and the world's travel, yet he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. And, and how many things? All. You know what the Greek word for all there means? All. That doesn't mean all things are good, it just means the sovereign king of the universe is not going to be thwarted by my knuckleheadedness, my rebelliousness, my sin, or other people's. He will not be thwarted by a, a, an earth that is groaning, because He has come and He is redeeming all of creation, will ultimately restore all things, and the assurance for little O me and little O you, in the midst of looking back at a past that debilitates us, that causes us despair, He says, I'm going to pick up every one of those things, and I'm going to use them all. In my sovereignty, I will transform them into usefulness for my purpose. Evil will not overcome my goodness. That's the gospel. Absolutely. So, I got all choked up earlier. It slowed me down, but uh, I I think I've got my voice back. So, here we go. Um, Secondly, It's not just the implications of His light. It's not just that my past is redeemable. My present becomes meaningful. Do you know Americans are the most anxious people on the planet? Amongst the most anxious nations. We are more, there's more anxiety. Americans are dealing with more anxiety than um, places like Nigeria Lebanon Ukraine why because we've acquired it all and we've realized it ain't enough Isaiah chapter 50 verse chapter 42 verse 16 says I'll lead the blind by ways they have not known along unfamiliar paths I will guide them I'll turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth these are the things I will do I will not forsake them but let me tell you there is an enormous asterisk the asterisk is but those who trust in idols So if I do what Søren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, describes as if I try to tranquilize myself with the trivial, because, as another existentialist said, uh, Henry David Thoreau, "All, all men leave lives of quiet desperation. The way we deal with that is we try to—we'll tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. We, we come up with our own painkillers, our own distractions. We turn the light of the gospel off, and we illuminate our own way. This is what will fulfill me in this moment. He says, if you do that, if you say to images, you're our gods, you say, well, I don't do that. I don't have a stone statue in my house. Uh, you, idolatry comes in all shapes and sizes. It's what we're going to instead of Him for the significance. He says, you'll be turned back in utter shame. You and I live in a culture that says we're lucky blobs of mud. We, we, we've happened, we were born by accident and we're heading to nothingness and yet we're somehow supposed to create significance in between that's logically improbable, impossible. And if you deal with it honestly without the gospel, you end up doing what Paul Gauguin where have we been? What is this all about? Where are we going? Don't know. I'm going to take some arsenic. Yet with the gospel, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, you trust Jesus, so here's the, the, the privilege. Then arise, shine, awaken in your journey. Doesn't mean we ignore the difficult stuff in our past or our present, but we engage with it within the light of the gospel because our light has come and the glory of the Lord that we can now participate in rises upon us. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. C.S. Lewis refers to those things as patches of Godlight that appear in our journey every day. So in the midst of what I'm dealing with, what you're dealing with in our past or our present, hear the words uttered at a festival with these blazing torches by a little carpenter from Galilee who says, you got darkness, let me tell you what I got. I am the light of your world. And the darkness is not going to overcome, but it also deals with my future. Because of the light of the gospel, my past… Becomes redeemable, my present becomes meaningful, and my future becomes favorable. I can look at the gospel with deep hope because of His light. Does it mean no bad stuff's gonna happen? Of course, we're still in the fallen world. Until Jesus comes, it will happen. He says, You know what? In John 16, He says, Difficult things are gonna happen. In this world, you will have trouble, it's gonna happen, but take heart. You can take heart about the future because I've overcome the world. The light overcome, uh, overcomes the darkness. Uh, There's this light bulb in um, Livermore, California in the fire station. It was turned on in 1901 and it's never been turned off. It's the longest continuously lit incandescent light bulb It's four watts. They don't dust it. They don't touch it. They do everything around it. That's great. But let me tell you, one day that light will go off. But as I look at my future and yours, (laughs) his light's not going off. Ever. Ever. Psalm 18, verse 28 you, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light, and with your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. So whatever, you know what? That's a wall. And he says, yep, but you're going to scale it because of my light. I will illuminate your way. I will be enough for you. So that's the near future, distant future. How about that? Revelation 21, verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God. This is describing heaven. The glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Why? He says, because He's the light of the world. You guys remember the movie, King's Speech? The King's Speech? You guys go to movies? You get out every now and then? (laughs) King George the Sixth. His first Christmas speech, Edward had just abdicated, and this was his first Christmas speech, Christmas of 1939. What was happening in Europe in 1939? Nazi Germany was taken over. Deep fear about the future faced Britain. He concluded his speech quoting a poem from a woman named Minnie Haskins that nobody had heard of. The poem was called God Knows, and it was in a collection of poems called The Desert, How cool is that combination? And here's how he closed his speech. And you'll be relieved to know I'm about to close. But I want you to hear this. This is what that poem says. He says, and he said this to Britain, who is deeply troubled by what was in the future. He said, I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread into the darkness unafraid. And the man replied, go into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. And that shall be for you better than any light and safer than any known way. I don't know what you got going on in the past, but I'm telling you in the name of Jesus, it's redeemable. I don't know what you got going on right now, but I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, your life is meaningful, and He's accomplishing something. Don't know what's ahead of any of us, but it's favorable for His glory, our good. I'm going to ask our worship team to come out, and what you and I are going to do before we head back out into the dark is we're going to proclaim that He is our way maker. We sang this last week. We're going to sing it again. And as we, Marsh talked about earlier, not just where their throats, but from our hearts and our minds. What if somebody could do a miracle with all of the shrapnel and sin from my past? We need a miracle worker. We got one. If we could figure out the right way to live right now, man, that would be great. We have a way maker. If if we could have someone that would keep all of their promises about assurances for the future. We've got one. Let's stand together and let's thank Him for that and then make this proclamation together. Don't listen to the next person sing to you without you singing, all right? You sing right along with them. You sing, I can't sing. You didn't make a joyful noise then. Let's lift the roof because we're men and women who've got the light of the gospel. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being the light of the world, for giving your light to us, for our past, for our present, for our future. So right now, may we authentically engage with whatever's going on in our past and call out to you as the light to do a miracle there in redeeming it. May we submit to you any confusion we've got about our present. And may we let you be the way maker and call out to you in that way. And may we look to our future that's uncertain, maybe finances, maybe addictions, maybe family stuff, marriage stuff, work stuff, May we see You as the promise keeper. May we worship not idols, not painkillers, not distractions, but may we worship You as the light of the world.